Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 166. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Pallavi Katamasu. And today we're going to be having a more theoretical conversation tied to a childhood thought that I've maintained for about a decade now. To explain to you, Pallavi, and the audience as well, I remember running errands with one of my parents as a young boy and waiting for them in the car. And I remember in a relatively crowded parking lot, seeing some birds flitting to and fro on the ground, picking up scraps, pecking at morsels they could find, and generally speaking, intermingling with a much larger and sometimes oblivious human crowd. And while this may not sound like an interesting anecdote to anyone listening... I remember at the time thinking how I as a person might benefit that bird or those birds and what was actually best for them in that scenario. I didn't observe that they were in any danger, but I know, of course, that people are not always kind to nature, and especially when it comes to smaller or more vulnerable living things, some people have a rather callous or even malicious attitude. And all of that thinking led me to the thought, which I've maintained and considered today, that perhaps it might have been in the best interest of those birds to have scared them away, to give them the impression, even though I would not identify myself this way, that human beings are dangerous, and that on some level I, as someone who would like to be compassionate, want to demonstrate the dangers of our species to these innocent birds by making loud noises and trying to show them that perhaps it isn't a safe area to occupy. And I suspect that that thought has stayed with me all these years because there are a few layers of nuance. And in fact, I've seen adults around me, quote unquote, scare the bird in an attempt to help more innocent or vulnerable individuals. For example, as I was preparing for this conversation, I thought about the possibility that certain abstinence-only sex ed programs are largely based around concepts of fear, at least in my perception, that sex or sexual contact of any kind is incredibly dangerous for the individuals involved. I don't personally believe that to be true, but I know there are still curricula that incorporate that thinking. And from the outside, that looks very malicious to me, but this topic has helped me reconsider that there are, I would like to believe, some compassionate intents behind some more fearfully based behaviors in our world. In response to your memory, I feel that I need to conjure up my own memory of what I've observed as a child between animals and humans. I grew up in a smaller town in Western Mass where animals definitely stayed a bit further away. Now living in Boston, I sometimes have to kick the area in front of a pigeon to make sure that it flies away so that I don't eventually step on it. But back home, I would look through the window, see cardinals and blue jays fly around. Sometimes they would perch on the window in front of me. But right when I would come close, they would fly away, even if I was four feet to the window. And they couldn't see me. There's a sun glare. They would just sense my presence and know that I was someone that could hurt them. So the reason I bring up this memory is because I want to demonstrate that there are different relationships between man and nature, specifically the relationship between woman and nature. I feel like in literature, we always go back to this sailor or this poet who's peering off a cliff or looking out to shore with a couple seagulls flying over his head. These birds are just out of reach. They symbolize freedom or home. And that's something that I personally have never been able to relate to. See, it's never been an issue for me to scare the birds away. 
because if I don't scare them, then they'll scare me. So specifically, I have a real, a very real fear of ducks. I saw one too many pictures of their genitalia, and I saw one too many ducks mating in a park. And if you haven't seen ducks mating in a park, try to avoid that experience. It's very aggressive. The male duck bites the neck of the female duck to keep her pinned down to the ground and shoves himself on her for an extended period of time. Usually when I think of birds mating, it's kind of just them flying into each other and then parting ways forever, even though I'm not really sure that any bird mates that way. But I've seen many a duck, many a goose, many a swan violently go at it. And maybe I saw that once when I was a child. I can't think of a specific memory, but it's definitely imprinted on my memory. And it created this necessity for me to make sure that I'm away from birds, that I stay away from birds, that I don't long for them in a way that a sailor might. And I really appreciate that example because the metaphor for me has often operated on the presumption that birds are inherently innocent. And that may tie back to a poetic or literary past that you point to. And I think it's valuable, though traumatizing, that you've had those experiences because for as graphic and unpleasant as they may be, they serve as a useful reminder that these creatures persist, that evolutionarily they can and will survive, however unintelligent or fragile or aimless we might believe them to be. And I think that also applies to the sparrows that I saw in the parking lot. At least I believe them to be sparrows, although admittedly I'm no ornithologist. To me, the observation of innocence, whether it is holistic or partial, I think gives the observer a sense that they are in some way more powerful or in control of the innocence they perceive. And it's something that often frustrates me with how adults treat children. Because children, while indeed there is a great deal they have yet to learn about the world, are very adaptable and intelligent and not only sponge-like in their intellects, but they are built to be adaptable. Their existence is absorbing information and learning to navigate the environments they occupy. And I suspect that something is very similar with birds, who historically did not live in urban environments because we as humans had not constructed cities and towns where birds lived. And so I'm coming to reconsider this topic as a reminder that birds don't need to be scared or even interacted with, and the bird watcher trope who can admire from afar might be the most ideal means of interacting with these and other creatures we perceive as innocent, because their perceived innocence does not preclude the birds from the ability to learn from their environment, which includes human beings and human behavior. So let's talk about that birdwatcher trope. This man, usually a man, looking out into the distance, watching for some sort of bird, slender, elegant, soaring through the sky, admiring but never being able to catch said bird. There's a not-so-subtle parallel to how a lot of male writers talk about women, yearning for this slender, elegant thing in the distance, not really knowing what it possesses, but wanting it because it's something to have. These birds, the way I view them, they're very capable. The fact that they've adapted to living in parking lots and in urban environments, in supermarkets, even though it's not a beautiful image, it demonstrates their strength. The fact that they're able to adapt to the environment that has been destroyed over and over again, and they're able to thrive in that environment. So I feel like it's an injustice for literary tradition to portray birds and women 
as these fragile things, these symbols that men can yearn for, when really we're just as complicated as anyone else. Birds can be terrifying and territorial. They know how to live in tough environments. And I think the same goes for women. There was a lot you said there that I really loved, especially in your phrasing. You talked about the bird in poetry as something to have, and I agree that that's problematic. I think one of the faults in my younger mind was to believe that I had some authority or agency in potentially acting to instruct these birds about the nature of humanity. And I also think there's something inherently pessimistic in my belief that I would need to scare these birds to keep them safe. Because surely I wasn't the only one, and am not the only one, who enjoys birds in these environments and appreciates their tenacity, as you point out, and also in their ability to fly and their unique appearance, a form of beauty. And so perhaps I should have been thinking more about the ways in which people do appreciate birds with things like bird feeders and other means of interacting with our avian friends. But of course, you used the phrase never being able to catch the bird, coming back to the bird watcher trope. And I believe one pitfall of our species is far too often relying on appearances and what we think we observe. And by that, I mean that a bird watcher might see a bird during the daytime, but not know what a bird's family or behaviors look like at night. And similarly, bird watchers are not so coincidentally at a distance where your ability to understand the animal or whatever it is you're observing is greatly reduced. You might not know the nuances of that bird call at a greater distance. And similarly, I too would criticize those whose relationship to innocence is to observe it at a great distance, but never try to appreciate how nuanced and muddied it might be because I think a lot of us have patchworks of innocence in our lives where we are not completely pure, nor are we completely disheveled and broken. And I find the word choice of catch the bird to be very poignant, both because I don't think it's the place of the bird watcher, nor in a literary tradition the place of a male observer typically to quote-unquote catch a woman because there's certainly a clear predatory tone there. And maintaining the parallel of bird as woman, for the purposes of this conversation and illustration, I think the problem is the thought that you should catch or scare the bird, when instead, people being very social, observant, and much like many of the animal kingdom, capable of learning, it should be the goal of humans, or men in the male bird watcher trope, to learn from and interact with the bird when possible and, of course, when appropriate. So we've been talking about this innocence, especially the innocence that maintains a distance between the bird watcher and the bird. And it's got me thinking about the images that we have of birds currently, in particular lovebirds, this idea that two birds are together forever in a monogamous relationship. And recently, I've actually been told that in the dark of the night, male birds and female birds will leave their nest to mate with other birds, so that if you look into the nest of one single pairing, of a monogamous quote-unquote pairing of birds, many of the siblings are half-siblings, many of the eggs have different parents. And I feel like there's a danger in maintaining this distance between bird watcher and bird, man and bird, man and woman, because it means that we never fully understand the thing that we're trying to adore. 
I agree. And another thought I've been having about my rather presumptuous nature as a younger child is that my belief that I could scare those birds, I think, speaks to a presumption of power or authority, and more importantly, that those creatures in this case would be scared by or of me. Because certainly human beings all over the world have tried to manifest any number of personas, characteristics, or traits that an audience, whether animal or human, didn't necessarily respond to. I'm sure there have been bears at which people have roared that were not phased at all. And similarly, I'll bet that a lot of birds we think we scare are not as afraid as we think they are, and are simply responding out of caution to the presence of large, perhaps threatening objects that they want to avoid, but maybe not so much out of fear as legitimate caution. But before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to our discussion? So I guess the most important thing is to really question these tropes and these images that have been introduced to us as children. I've been trying more and more to think about the layers of what birds are, especially with this episode. Sometimes I'm afraid of them, sometimes they're afraid of me, and I think that relationship of fear is more a spectrum than a one-way street. Following the birdwatcher trope, and the fact that men are sometimes birdwatchers of women, we have to understand that sometimes the person we fear to approach may reciprocate that fear, or be a valid thing to fear, but we'll never know until we approach them. And on that point, where possible, and of course consensually so, as I'm sure listeners who know me would expect, I would always encourage those conversations and interactions to happen more frequently, to learn about the people we live with or near, and especially in the digital age, to seek out their stories where you need not even be in the same place to cultivate a better sense of empathy for a different group or a different person. And we had been discussing the birdwatcher trope as it relates to a gendered dichotomy, but I suspect there are many ways it could apply to other situations that tie fear, innocence, and observation together, and I'd really love to know what listeners think about that. And finally, I would encourage listeners to look around them and think twice about environments where you think fear might dominate and where in fact adaptability and practicality might have, over time, eroded or displaced fear in a healthy way. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any thoughts, opinions, or feedback of any kind, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where you can enjoy perks like bonus episodes in exchange for your support. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Pallavi Kutamasu. Think twice or more. (laughs) 